Bryant Liu is the vice chairman of Ronald Liu and Partners. Established by his father in 2000, the firm has six offices across mainland China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, tackling high-profile projects including Tencent's new headquarters in Shanghai. Liu is also an advocate for Hong Kong's cultural scene, holding roles at M Plus and the Hong Kong Arts Centre. Today, he joins Susie Anetta on the line from Hong Kong. This is the Design Dialogues. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Sure. Nice to be here, Susie. I usually like to start these conversations by going back to the very beginning of uh, someone's career and, and talking a bit about studies. And uh, I believe that you studied architecture at Cornell. And I wanted to talk, or have you talk a little bit about the reasons for wanting to study there. And I know that your father was a big influence on your life, but I wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about that in detail and if there were any other role models or people who inspired you. Happy to share. Um, like you said, my father uh, is an architect. Uh, he studied uh, in UNSW, uh, New South Wales, and then uh, did his master at MIT. Um, I guess he started his own firm in 1976. I was about one and a bit, two. Um, so when he came out back in those days, it's a, it's a small firm, just himself, a few staff. And back then, obviously, no computer. So daytime, he'll go out for meetings. And then when he couldn't finish his work in the office, he'd bring the work back to home. So at home, we have the whole architectural studio set up in his office uh, uh, with, you know, sliding rules, you know, scale rules and all sorts of fun gadgets lying around. And, and as a kid, obviously, I'm quite curious what daddy's doing. So sometimes he would, when he, when he worked late, I came back and, and he would put me on his lap and then show me the drawings that he's doing, uh, share with me the plan. So I guess at a very young age, I was um, exposed to design, to drawings, to uh, you know the classic tools in architecture's plan, elevations and, and sections, these sort of type of drawings. And then um, without really knowing it, how much I've taken in, uh, in, in during kindergarten, I was asked to draw uh, your room. So most of my classmates probably draw how they see their, their room. I took out a black crayon and start drawing lines uh, and then submitted that drawings in. And then the teacher freaked out, called my mom. You know, when, when the teacher called your mom to pick up your kid, it's never a good thing. So um, my mom showed up and the teacher's like, you know, Mrs. Liu, we asked him to draw his room. This is what he drew. So my mom, my mom looked at it and cracked up because I basically took a black crayon and drew the full plan of my room. <laughs> so I guess at a very young age, I was uh, exposed to that. And, and architecture is something that is always around you. And when you hang out with architects, you would know everybody have a critique on everything and <laughs> from 
show planning to color the design to how it's designed or can be designed better. So I guess I picked up a lot of that as well at the dining table whenever we travel. Um, so we, architecture and design become very much part of my life. So when I was asked to consider what to study, um, architecture naturally came up as uh, as uh, a career of uh, possibility and. And actually, my father tried to persuade me not to do it by throwing me to a construction site all the way up north uh, in Queensland and, and Bundaberg, <laughs> um, thinking that by working I would not like it. But what happened was these guys, you know, they finish. You go to work very early in the morning. You finish by three three thirty, and you go out to a local pub, have a drink, and then <laughs> hit a yeah. round of golf. So I actually really liked it. So um, it sort of had a, a reverse effect. And, and so when I get to choose uh, what to study after high school, um, I pick architecture. It's just something I'm very familiar with. Uh, I love how the building environment shape and changes people, how it impacts cities, and all these things uh, are very tangible. Mm. I, think, I think comparing to law or even investment banking, it's hard to explain to a kid what it really is. But when it comes to building design spaces, it's very tangible. So uh, I became quite intrigued and, and uh, decided to uh, try it out. So that's mm. how it all started. Wow. And so did you go back to Hong Kong straight away after studies and, and enter the, the sort of your father's firm or was there some interim time spent elsewhere? So um, I actually did my, I did my high school in Sydney. Mm. So after that, um, I wanted to explore the world a little bit. So while I, I you know, did my HSC and, and, and uh, applied for uh, university in Australia, I also applied for university abroad in the U.S. And fortunately, I was accepted by Cornell. So I went to Cornell and studied my undergraduate. And after I graduated, I actually worked in New York for two years. Mm. Uh, from 97, nine, no, sorry, 98, 99, two years, and then I returned to Hong Kong uh, in 2000 and started, uh, joined my father's firm in the year 2000, and, and I guess, as they say, the rest is history. Mm. Been here 24 years. <laughs> wow. And so you're now located and I guess based out of Hong Kong, which uh, is yeah, a very special place in my heart, having lived there for 15 years. I, I want to talk a bit about Hong Kong, actually, and um, maybe your thoughts on what makes it such a livable city. Um, you know, I sure. guess, say in comparison to somewhere regionally like Singapore or Taiwan, um, how do you think it compares? And yeah, you know, what are the what are the great things that Hong Kong has going for it in that sense? Sure, absolutely. I love I love talking about Hong Kong. It's mm -hmm. I, I love this city. Um, I mean, I've been I've been around. Right? I, I lived in Sydney. I lived in New York. I live in upstate New York. I've spent some time in London. In, in Rome as well, and I love all those cities, but Hong Kong always have a special place in my heart. Apart from, you know, I have families and friends here, I think the city itself is quite unique. Uh, when you said compare Singapore or Taiwan, mm. I think I have to start with the geography of Hong Kong. Mm. Um, we're at, Hong Kong has an island and then a peninsula attached, so it's Kowloon and, and New Territory. But what Hong Kong has to offer, I think, is very unique. Uh, Singapore, I mean, Singapore and Hong Kong often get compared. Singapore is like a garden city. The island is relatively flat. So 
the trees and the buildings kind of mix together in a very nice way. Mm. Uh, Hong Kong is the other opposite, a different strategy. Hong Kong, because of its mountainous sort of way that that the ge- the geography is it's it's formed, we have flatland along the coastline. So most of the building, uh, it's along the coastline, which. A lot of people didn't know. Only about twenty-five percent of Hong Kong is actually urbanized or occupied. Mm. The remaining seventy-five are country parks, hills, mountains. So what it created is a very extreme sort of contrast where you could be in downtown in, in, in central in the city, and if you take a, a cab, fifteen minutes, literally one five, fifteen minutes, mm. you can get to a trail and go hiking. Mm. And and then another fifteen minutes, you'll be on the beach and beautiful beaches. So I think Hong Kong offers that uniqueness of a very multicultural, cosmopolitan uh, urban setting, uh, very high density, super convenient, and yet within close proximity, you have the most amazing outdoor trails. Uh, if you like hiking, beaches, the ocean is very safe, no sharks, no, <laughs> no deadly creatures, um, and also um, the temperature all year round it's very it's subtropical climate, right? Summer it gets a little hot, mm. but winter is perfect. So all year round it's quite decent, and I always say you can do almost all the sports in Hong Kong apart from skiing. <laughs> so you have access to all these amazing uh, natural terrains, uh, uh, and all the activities has to offer. And I think recent years, um, Hong Kong for a long time on the cultural bit is a little bit behind. But I think re- recent years with West Kowloon Cultural District, we just opened the M Plus Museum, which is marvelous. Mm. It's it's almost I mean it's like the Tate Modern of of, of Asia. I don't think there's another institute in Asia can compare in terms of its scale, its diversities, what it has collected, mm. uh, and then a bunch of performance spaces with the Palace Museum, showcasing uh, national treasures from Beijing. First time being able to ship out of Beijing to be in Hong Kong, so creating this another cultural identity, which is. Very interesting. I think for those that lived in Hong Kong,、um, when compared to Taiwan or compared to Singapore, Hong Kong is truly East meets West, but we have the best of both worlds.、Um, especially when it comes to food, you have all the top Michelin, all the world top fifty restaurants of a very diverse cuisine from Mexican, Indian, Chinese, of course, Japanese, Italian, French.、Um, so. From a lifestyle perspective and its offering perspective, I think is quite unique. And then the people itself is also、um, very multicultural. A lot of us study abroad and came back, so the city is very easy for expats and and mainland to come in and plug in and and find familiarity and yet. New、uh, frontier that they can explore. That's all very true, and you're making me miss Hong Kong terribly. You, you、um, I, come back. I, I, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I wonder if you could talk a little bit about things like the infrastructure and the public transport,、sure. and and how that sort of you know I guess plays into that whole livability aspect as well. Absolutely. I think I talked about the proximity of Hong Kong, the the the, the efficiency of Hong Kong. I think that the infrastructure bit is it's what make Hong Kong works.、Mm. Uh, very often, I, I give you a small、uh, story where it's a few years ago, pre-COVID, of course,、uh, when everybody's still flying around, very busy. So 
my family always have a uh, on Sunday we always have a dinner together, and that day everybody was either coming in town or leaving town. So what happened? We made a booking at uh, IFC, which is a uh, in downtown Central, where there's a train that connects uh, out to uh, the airport, and it takes 23 minutes.、Mm. And and another th- offer service that they have is what they call in-town checking, where you can check in your bag 20 24 hours prior for your departure, and the bag is safely stored and then sent straight straight to. So you can get your boarding pass and everything ready. So that day I was leaving. My sister-in-law was coming in from London. My、uh, my brother was coming in from from China. So we actually meet up at seven at IFC at dinner, and then we all left to、uh, different. Some went back home. Some go to the airport. And that convenience and that predictability, I think that certainty is is key.、Uh, knowing that you can get to the airport in twenty three minutes, knowing that everything would work smoothly. I think that's very, very valuable for Hong Kong. Our public transportation, our MTR、uh, underground train system is super efficient, clean, and、uh, the 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 train frequency is also very high. So、um, you can get access to that、uh, quite easily from different part of town. And being everything so closely、uh, sort of located, it's. I mean, you really move really. You know, within thirty minutes, you can pretty much get to. The whole city、mm. uh, within reach, whether it's driving or by public transportation,、um, and it's fairly cheap comparing to London or other places, and it's much cleaner than, you know,、uh, than the underground in, in New York and all that. It's a pretty special place, and but I think you know Hong Kong, as you've mentioned, is so dense,、um, and even with land reclamation, there's there's still very limited limited opportunities, I think, for architects to to build and to design new buildings. But you've had the fortune to be involved in a number of projects, I guess, along as you said, West Kowloon and Victoria Dockside.、Um, I think for any architect to have built or be involved in projects that have become landmarks in the city skyline is a rare opportunity. And I, I wonder if you could talk. To us a little bit about some of those experiences being involved in such incredible new landmarks. Absolutely, I think Hong Kong is unique.、Um, I often get asked by friends abroad, say, "Hong Kong is so dense, no more land. How, how, how are you running out of projects? Do you have any other things to do?" I think the real estate and the advancement of Hong Kong means that our real estate inventory get turned around. Demolished and then rebuilt every fifty, sixty, seventy years or so. Obviously, there are some landmarks that will last,、uh, you know, over a century. I mean, our city has only been one hundred and twenty, one hundred and twenty years old. So we're still a fairly new uh, city uh, when compared to, you know, great places like Rome and and the European cities.、Mm. Um, but because of our development of economic advancement. A lot of these projects get torn down and and rebuilt. For example, Victoria Dockside was literally a dockside, and then got redeveloped into a hotel slash、uh, uh, real retail and center. And then subsequently, when the airport was relocated from Kai Tak from downtown from the harbor to the new airport outside, all of a sudden the development rights, the height restrictions, is gone. So that enabled the dockside project to redevelop and increasing its its、uh, its building bulk, hence making the economics work, and so we're able to involve in that project. But the sustainability side on that, the cultural aspect of、uh, Victoria Dockside, been very exciting. 
is a new waterfront landmark for not just for Hong Kong, but I think for as the K11 brand sort of uh, landmark and for the Rosewood Hotel landmark as well. So it really become an iconic uh, new uh, center for Hong Kong, which is quite exciting. I think Hong Kong has this ability to regenerate itself. Um, there are issues that we need to improve. Um, for example, a waterfront used to be quite chopped up and not linked and not people friendly. Mm. I think the city spent the last 15 years changing that. So now on the Hong Kong island side, the waterfront, we're starting to connect almost from one end to the other end. And similarly for the Kowloon side, they're doing a similar thing. So bringing the waterfront back to the people, activating uh, the accessibility of, of the, uh, uh, the jogging trails and the event space. I think Hong Kong is finally waking up that um, events and sports and cultural are important part of city life. And we're trying to uh, catch up compared to some of the other great cities. But I think we're doing a good job in improving that. Um, and because of this rapid economic development and this accessibility, uh, more and more projects, older ones get, get torn down and get rebuilt. So in a way, it's good for the sustainability of Hong Kong. As new inventory comes up, they are far more sustainable, they're far more environmental friendly. Um, so it will help the city to be more sustainable and, and moving towards um, uh, more carbon neutral uh, sort of uh, direction. Yeah, that's really great to know. And I'm sure given the density and the public transport accessibility, you know, also plays a big part in Hong Kong being a sustainable city. But I wanted to ask you about um, the science-based target initiatives that mm -hmm. um, your practice is committed to. And I wondered if you could talk through that a little bit more and, you know, why you feel it's so important to be committed to those. I think our office have been committed to sustainability since uh, early 2000. Um, one of the reasons why, actually, I have to thank my uh, high school experience in, in, in Sydney. Um, I think you and I are similar vintage. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and we, we rem I don't, when I was there, I remember the big hole down in the ozone on the southern hemisphere. Mm hmm was a big thing. Uh, there was a lot of public campaign about putting sunblock on, the strong zinc, mm -hmm. you know, white or, or neon color uh, sunblock on because of the potential of uh, developing skin cancer. Mm. And that experience taught me that, you know, when, when you know, that, that hole was caused by the refrigerant mm -hmm. CFC, right? And Globally, in the old days, we use it for uh, car air conditioning and sometimes even general building air conditioning. Mm -hmm. When they run out of it, when they put refill it, they just let the gas out into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And that get accumulated at the southern part of the, um, the atmosphere. And it would work, it would basically have a chemical reaction with the ozone and then depleted the ozone. There's a big hole. So as a result, I think New Zealand and Australia then got exceptional amount of UV rays into our, our into in terms of the daylight then causing a lot of skin cancer so this whole global environmental issues is not just environmental but it's also public health issues mm. it affects people's life and that's when I learned that sustainability it's it's very important and we need to do better because we are global citizen it doesn't matter who does it in the end of the day we all suffered so that was the sort of the, the reason behind 
my view on architecture or everyone, I mean, it doesn't necessarily just architecture. I think everyone in the world has a responsibility to make the world a better place than, than we first occupied it. I mean, leaving it, not leaving the problem for our children. I think that's important. So that has always been part of my ethos or my deeper sort of conviction that how can we create a better world? Um, so moving up to the SBTI uh, science-based target initiative is, uh, we, I mean, since the company has always been on this journey on sustainable design, I often ask the question, how can we do better? And to be honest, without data, it's impossible. I mean, I cannot, for instance, if you're driving a car with no speedometer, I ask you to slow down. Hmm. You don't really know whether you are slowing down or not. Mm. So I think having data, having numbers help you to track and, and make improvements. So our office actually first initiative when we decided to approach sustainability is not to market out, is not to, is actually asking, we have a, a lady that comes in the morning to clean out cups and, and throw out the trash and so on and so forth. I gave her an extra task. It's a clipboard with the, everybody's name on it. So who then switch off the computer, the fan, the lighting, they get a tick. Mm. So and then that that name list goes on on uh, on display. <laughs> so so it's really about changing our own behavior. Mm. So just by doing that with no new technology, the good old clipboard and and a pen, I was able to reduce our electricity uh, by three percent. Mm. So that mm. gave me an inspiration that we got to find ways to improve our behavior. But having data helps. So I I was going back and checking the the the. Le, le, uh, the electricity meter. So the SBTI uh, initiative gives me a much more better framework to measure how we're doing. And it covers all aspects from scope one, scope two, scope three, including now I'm more conscious when I'm flying because if I fly business class, it's actually more carbon footprint than economy. So it's not just a cost issue. Mm. But um, And with Hong Kong being, I mean, I'll, I go to China quite a bit. And in the old days, I tends to fly. And now with the high-speed rail of China, which is super convenient, wherever I can take the train, I take the train. Mm. And I find it as it's a, better, it's a better arrangement, more certainty as well. So the whole SBTI really help us to monitor our own behavior. And at the same time, can able to tell the client that we want to help to um, by lowering the global temperature by 1.5 degrees. Now... That's a big undertaking, um, but we believe that the first step is having data, uh, knowing where you are, and then try to find ways to improve it. Uh, and I think if everybody's doing that, um, we'll be in a better place five mm. years, ten years down the road. Mm. Yeah, look, I'm sure the architecture and design community listening is probably sitting there nodding their head, but I'm, I'm wondering how receptive your clients are to this. Do you think it's something that they are as passionate about as you are? Or do they understand how imperative it is? Surprisingly, um, when I first came back in early 2000, um, the leaders of most of my clients, um, private, private developers, that conversation, I think, because they, they just don't understand, so they just always say, oh, we just plant more trees. <laughs> and that means more sustainable. Um, but I think the last 10, 15 years, that conception have changed significantly. Uh, a lot of the my clients' uh, kids, which is my, my vintage, they have come into leadership role, 
and the conversation shifts from arguing whether we should do it or not do it to what, how much are we doing, to what extent we're doing. So I think willing to do it, that's a huge shift as to how much to do. Obviously, there are other considerations. On the Hong Kong side, the government side, actually a few years ago, um, the government engaged us as uh, one of the consultants to lead a study on the building code and how can we uh, do better for Hong Kong. Um, I think it's important to realize that every city, because of its own climate, uh, whether it's where they are and also the microclimate, um, every city should have their own sort of uh, sustainable building guidelines um, because our culture, the way that the city is shaped and positioned is different. So we help the Hong Kong government to develop a set of guidelines which become regulations. Um, and one of it was also by incentivizing our developers saying that if you go on and, and do the green building label, you get additional incentives in the development. And that have helped to shift uh, all the new buildings in Hong Kong towards a more uh, sustainable front. And like I said earlier, Hong Kong's uh, building cycle is a lot quicker. So mm -hmm. by having these new code in the in the next 30 years, I think we eventually, most of the building will be far more sustainable than the old inventories. Um, so I'm seeing that change in Hong Kong, uh, but having incentive from the government to push the uh, developers to move towards a more sustainable design, I think is, is good. And now with, with the, you know, with sort of no longer climate change, more climate emergency, extreme weather, all these things are coming very quickly. Uh, in Hong Kong, I think the urban heat island effect and the rising temperature, particularly in the summertime, I was at a conference yesterday and the projection of sort of heat, hot days, a hot nights, what we call over 35 degrees Celsius, used to be three, four nights a year and now towards 30, and they're predicting almost uh, 100 days uh, a year. That means mm -hmm. the ventilation of the building is important, which will impact, and air conditioning obviously will increase, and that will impact our carbon load. So I think it's it's for the investment perspective from the, the longevity of your uh, of your development perspective, um, having buildings that are more climate resilient, uh, having buildings that are more uh, better value for, uh, I mean, more sustainable and lower you know, long-term electricity bill, it's actually good marketing. Um, uh, it makes sense for buyers as well. So mm -hmm. I think everybody is moving towards uh, conscious that uh, having a more resilient building is actually a good investment from whether you're a developer or a buyer of, uh, of your apartments or your houses. Um, so I think the market will be shifting um, from flood control to extreme weather, extreme hot, extreme cold, uh, insulation, and obviously the, the energy bill. I think that's another aspect that we have to aware. The future energy bill will be far more expensive than now, simply of, of the carbon emission uh, tax of some sort, I think. Uh, mm. It's hard to not see how the world may move towards that. That's that's really interesting, but also very encouraging to hear the direction in which Hong Kong's going. Um, I wanted to ask you about another initiative that you sort of spearheaded um, through the firm that you're with uh, called Behave. Could you yes. tell us a little bit about that? Behave is stemmed from behavior, but uh, another funny story is 
the name came about. I don't know whether you watch Austin Powers. Yeah, yeah it's been a while, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I know it, it showed our age. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but you know he he said, "Oh, behave!" You know when he said that, and and it's really how we are behaving. Um, like I said, for sustainability, for very often our behavior impacts the design, and and obviously you know the design may impact people's life, but ultimately. We should design towards、uh, the behavior of people、um, as technology, because I guess the behavior stems from our sustainability group, because we have done all the regulatory advice from the design side, and with the recent technology interruption, we realize that our lives, the way that we live, are changing. And as a, as that goes on, then realize very often by the time the brief from the client comes to us, it's already. Too fixed. We may ask them, "Hey, why are you doing this? Why don't you do something different?" Oh, it's too late. We already went through all the approvals, and therefore we're stuck. So I want to start a conversation with、uh, clients、uh, on a earlier stage、um, to see whether there is something that we can do research on, or something that can help to impact the brief so that it become more future ready.、Um, Increasingly, we're seeing these disruption from COVID、uh, to technology. That people,、uh, the way we work, the way we live, is is changing quite rapidly. So, when we design building that lasts thirty, fifty years, if we are not future sort of try to future ready these buildings, they may get obsolete or or you know they may not be no longer sort of relevant. And that will increase our future, you know, renovation or carbon footprint by taking it down, rebuilding it. So, having these earlier conversation on research topic, we find it more important. And we go beyond just sustainability, but I think on、uh, a broader sort of conversation from、uh, from technology interruption to、uh, general even COVID, right? So,、mm. a lot of、uh, change are happening, and we feel that as a firm. If we just do design, by the time we started drawing, it's already too late. We should have an earlier conversation with clients, and therefore establishing behave is really to engage our client on a more topical or more broader sort of conversation before they decide what is right.、And、very often, they may not even have a project yet, but it's about the general exploration on hey, how this mobility,、uh, new automated mobility, would change our city. So these sort of Questions, I think, is warrant some conversation,、uh, and then may lead to future design concepts or even urban planning concepts that makes our city more future ready. Well, speaking of COVID, I guess, and、um, human behaviour, you have the, or the firm, I should say, Ronald Lewin Partners has six hundred staff, I believe, across six different offices in Hong Kong, Taipei, and across China, mainland China. Um, I'm curious to know how.、Um, I guess not you necessarily personally, but the practice has maintained or has how you found maintaining corporate culture throughout this period of time. I mean,、um, obviously Hong Kong had some social unrest for a period of time before COVID, so it's been you know、uh, working from home and. Um, working from a distance for longer than perhaps other parts of the world, and I'm yeah, I'm wondering how you've found that managing staff、um, and maintaining that sort of corporate culture throughout that、um, time. Sure,、uh, actually, surprisingly,、um, our office 
um, never really shut down throughout the whole COVID. Mm. I think we have a short stint where we had in the early stage where we had a few cases, then we need to you know stop and do deep cleaning and checking everybody's okay and then but we so I think it has to do with the context of let's just say the Hong Kong office per se to start mm. first. The context of Hong Kong, most of the apartments are relatively small. And because of that, in fact, most of our colleagues doesn't want to work from home. Mm. Because you have your two kids, kids could be at Zoom. So imagine uh, working parents and say two kids, you have four people occupying a small apartment. You run out of space to do Zooms very quickly. <laughs> so I've heard cases where, you know, the husband may be stuck in the toilet where the echo is not so convenient or, or one stuck in the kitchen, one in the living room, one in the bedrooms. So it's, it's that smaller, because I think the smaller uh, living units, actually most of our colleagues want to come back to the office. And also, I think it, for our industry, we use you know very powerful computers. Uh, we need a strong network, and also we use double screens. Working from a laptop is not the most uh, efficient and and pleasure sort of uh, operation. Mm. So, at the height of COVID, what happened is I actually rented an extra space in the same building, but it's an isolated space, and I call that kind of like the dirty room. <laughs> where where colleagues say if they are in close contact with uh, with someone who had COVID, um, they sign a release form and say you can work in this. We we'll have this room set up with all the infrastructure. The computers are there. The network is there. It's upstairs, downstairs from our main office. Um, provided you you understand the risk, mm. you can come in and work there, and that will become quite popular. So, so I think for Hong Kong and, and quite a few, uh, even in China, most of our offices, we, uh, there are people that work from home because they were close proximity or they got sick or the kids got sick. So we have a very flexible work arrangement, but most wanted to come back into the office. And also we find our, our work to have a face-to-face -face interaction to talk about uh, you know, those meetings actually very, uh, it's much more efficient um, to do a quick sketch, to figure out, hey, the problem, we should solve it this way. That face-to-face -face interaction is becoming more, more important. So what's changed for our office is not so much that people stay work from home. They all come on to come in, but we're looking into our workspace and we realize that we should have more collaboration space. Uh, than actual working desk space. I think that ratio is, is shifting. Uh, for those who are, for some of my friends who are working in banking, which uh, allow more flexibility, I'm seeing increasing they come in for meetings and workshop and then doing the actual work outside of the office. So that's changing the office layout design uh, where, you know, in the old days, maybe 70% is individual workstation, 30% is meeting and collaborative space. I'm seeing that ratio changing subject to the industries. Mm. Um, so I think for us in Hong Kong and China, the COVID, um, I know some of my friends who is in, in the U.S. or Australia, they're so used to working from home, they want to continue to work from home. Uh, but I think that's because they have a bigger units and apartment and maybe the network is better. But for us, uh, we find our colleagues prefer to come in. Mm. 
And maybe that's because we're so close as well. I think during COVID, I heard my friends in New York, they all bought a house in Westchester. So it's an hour and a half commute. Of course, they don't want to come in. Yeah. But Hong Kong, everybody still live within, you know, at max an hour or 45 minutes train ride away. Um, some are even closer. So they don't see a problem coming in. They'd rather come in than stuck at home with all the kids screaming and <laughs> the chaos. <laughs> so I, I find that um, because the way the city is designed, I think in Hong Kong and some of our China offices, people prefer to come in. Well, I feel like I could sit here and talk about Hong Kong and architecture with you all afternoon, but I'm, I'm just going to ask one more question because sure. I'm sure you're a very busy man. Um, you've you painted a very evocative picture of the city before with, you know, talk of beautiful beaches and hiking mm -hmm. trails and, yeah, you've really got me missing Hong Kong. But I wonder if you could describe the city for anyone that hasn't been there before or maybe for a long time because obviously it's changing so quickly, but mm -hmm. could you describe it from a design or an architectural perspective and maybe if there's one particular building um, that you have designed or haven't designed, it's up to you, that, um, sure, that you'd sure, like sure. to talk about. Um, I think for architects, we always uh, have the hope and dream that the best building is still on the drawing board. Mm. So that's something uh, that, that sort of motivates us to go forward. But I think as a city, Hong Kong is a, it's a, it's a city of contrast. We have a hyper-densified urban setting juxtaposed with a extreme nature friendly outdoor green space whether it's a green and blue spaces right whether it's the harbor the beaches or the backdrop of mountains um, so that sort of uh, uh, short I mean you cut us as architect you cut a section through Hong Kong Island uh, it's a very in, in intriguing section because you have mountains you comes down the slope there's these buildings that you have to get to experience we have a very famous outdoor escalator that connects people down if you cut a section through that where there is a long or cross section the proximity of people to the public space to the streets is, is very intriguing uh, then you goes down to the the harbor front which is a, a, a wider open space that everybody's sort of drawn towards. So somehow it, we always drawn towards water, at least particularly on Hong Kong Island because we're surrounded by it. Um, then you go to the north side where it's proximity to China, you have then a more diverse sort of landscape with also high ultra density, but at the same time uh, uh, you get to experience the street life, the, the proximity of, of you know, shops and people and flavors and texture. Then you get to these mountains where you just go up and you can look back into the city. So I would say Hong Kong from an uh, architectural perspective, you can get to experience amazing waterfronts. You have these larger new infrastructure buildings, the M Plus by Jose de Moron. You have the, the Palace Museum by Rocco, a local architect. You get these super high rise building, 400 meters plus. Um, then adjacent to it, this new public space. Uh, one of my personal, I guess, two projects that comes to mind that uh, our firm have involved. One is a, a zero carbon park, which is a, uh, a park with a building that is the first building we try to achieve uh, zero carbon. Uh, it was done 10 years ago uh, in a new sort of uh, CBD area. 
for me, that project plays a special heart because Hong Kong, for the first time, we try to showcase that we can also do a low carbon or carbon neutral building, and that building actually it's uh, shifted the design language uh, from just sustainability to carbon being the the real unit of measure of uh, better performance. Um, another project that we did was the Situ Center for West Kowloon Cultural District. Um, it was a design competition that we won against uh, some of these top global design firms. Uh, we created a public space that is uh, covered but naturally ventilated. I think that prototype of a covered public space um, it's very important for. Uh, subtropical uh, cities like Hong Kong, because summer it gets really hot, so we need to be shaded, uh, but yet naturally ventilated. Otherwise, the electricity bill is too high. Um, and also, we have tropical storms, so we provide a very cool, shaded environment where people can rest and enjoy themselves. And every now and then, there's public performances being held there as well. So. Uh, the Situ Building, uh, it's a Chinese opera performance hall with 1,100 seats. We lifted that hall up to the sixth floor, so leaving the belly open for the public to have access. So that project we're quite proud of because the this sort of public space, um, when we first do the design and we won the competition, there were some critics saying that, oh, you guys make this building so expensive, you're lifting everything up. Um, they didn't really understand the importance of that public space. Um, but once it's done, everybody loved it. Um, the government was saying, oh, we need more of this. I said, yes, we do. So that helped to shift some of Hong Kong's uh, thinking on, on public space, um, but particularly with our hot summer. <clears throat> if an open piazza, nobody would sit there, it's just too hot. Mm. So um, these shaded um, public spaces, I think it's important for our climate type. So, mm. yeah, we just ask people to come to Hong Kong. I think yes. recently there's been a lot of negative news on Hong Kong and saying we're dead, we're over. No, no, by all means, we're very <laughs> vibrant. Um, we have a lot of new things that happened along the waterfront, new cultural facilities, new art performance facilities, uh, um, a lot of new restaurants. So come and experience for yourself. Yeah, I think that's great. I think one of the magical things about that city is this constant sort of ability to reinvent itself. So yes, I agree. Go back to Hong Kong. It's still wonderful. <laughs> it always will be. Yes. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, Brian. It's been really lovely chatting to you today. Thank you, Susie.